Hi, I'm Richard O'Brien. It's the 6th of September at 3.19pm, and this is Now Here We Are 30 Years Later, a memoir in Mountain Goat Songs. Each episode looks at a year in my life through the lens of a song by John Darnielle. Today, we're in 1998, and the song is Golden Boy. A quick content note. Today's episode features discussion of food, bodies, and disordered eating, including brief references to vomiting and self-harm. There are mountain goat songs that take the eternal tussle between flesh and spirit more seriously than Golden Boy, but none which approach the subject with such great joy. In a spirited, ad-libbed intro to the 1998 boombox recording he was making for a friend's compilation on the theme of songs about products, John Donneal tells compiler Paul Lucas, Now I'm wearing my boots, which always guarantees a good showing. From this point on, the listener is buckled in for three minutes of increasingly exuberant engagement with the pleasures of living in a body, responses so strong they can apparently transcend physical death. The song's central conceit is that good things will happen if you live in the way specified by the new commandment issued by Jesus in John 13:34, and popular still in the choral singing of 90s Catholic schools, that you love one another as I have loved you. The singer recommends an ethic of mutual respect, doing unto others as you would have them do, which includes elements of charity and Christ-like forbearance, giving to the march of dimes, letting your enemy oppress you some more, in exchange for a reward in heaven. So far, so orthodox. What isn't, as far as I know, included in any other eschatological tradition is the Singaporean snack pack Daniel throws in as a kicker. Follow these precepts, he sings over a tried and tested chord sequence which resolves from a seventh down to the key's home chord, and you won't only get the transcendence of all earthly cares, the bliss of basking in the Lord's own light, When you die, you'll find golden boy peanuts waiting in the afterlife for you. I'm not here to debate whether or not the peanuts are good, to discern whether there is any way of currently buying them, to unpick, even, what it means for the home of the blessed to seemingly access the same global supply chains that stock the pan-Asian supermarkets and adorn the advertising billboards of Clinton's America. All of this is to some extent part of the joke that the song tells, and the context for its wider comic meaning in the fan community some 23 years later. What interests me is that it isn't that common for a spirit to munch on anything at all in mainstream conceptions of a Christian afterlife. Munching has as much to do with sound as taste. It's the kind of eating that draws attention, the kind that gets you told off on a train by a stranger. And when I say you, I mean that this has personally happened to me. It implies a lip-smacking enjoyment which is wholly at odds with ascetic notions of denying the flesh in the hope of later spiritual nourishment. God, it seems to say, will set a plate for you. He will give you what your body craves, with unlimited refills. The zine behind the Object Lessons compilation, Lucas's Beer Frame, the Journal of Inconspicuous Consumption, was dedicated to deconstructing the details of consumer culture Details that are either so weird or obscure that we'd never see them, or so ubiquitous that we've essentially stopped seeing them. Growing up in Southern California, with its all-night grocery stores, and a keen cook with international ambitions since turning vegetarian in 1996, Daniel clearly understood the brief. As he told Food Republic interviewer Matt Rodbard, I think about food a lot. The singer in Soft Targets cries when he's hungry, Worse things seem to be in store for the narrator of Jaipur, who is also simultaneously tired and mad as all hell. 
even if we take the avenging voice in getting into knives less than literally and understand the term he uses as an artistic, sexual or spiritual metaphor in the manner of Leonard Cohen's Who by Fire or You Have Loved Enough, hunger is still a powerful enough motivating factor for a 30-year journey towards an uncertain reward. Daniel recounts one especially resonant early food memory in a podcast interview with Shivan Bhatt. As a child, he discloses in the midst of a reverie about gifting fruit to the household deities, I had family in southern Oregon who had grown a bunch of raspberries and my mother snuck me down to the fruit cellar. Surrounded by buckets of delicious fresh fruit for the taking, Daniel experienced what he describes as a moment of profound communion, which has stayed with him for life. Echoes of its intensity can be heard across the catalogue, perhaps most directly in I've Got the Sex, I scooped up a palmful of strawberry pulp and smeared it all over you. Here, too, as John tells Butt, food functions as a conduit for the divine. You will experience God when you eat a proper watermelon. It's spiritual, and it's physical, and it's sensual. Elsewhere, Daniel identified himself to Electric Lit in 2014 as a giant candy fiend. Recent tweets about jujubes confirm the diagnosis. A 2017 Vice interview sees journalist Drew Millard clearly alternately charmed and alarmed to find his subject before noon munching on bottle caps hard candy while extolling the virtues of the Nouveau Roman. It seems worth noting that Golden Boy isn't even his first song to mention peanuts. It's no surprise, then, that fans have compiled lists of their own favourite food references in Daniel's lyrics. I suggest this is a subset of his broader investment in conveying the textures of embodied experience, from the simplest quenching of thirst, cold, clear water in a tall, clean glass, to the near-lethal bliss of a heroin overdose, felt in the body as the warmest feeling in the world. Often these worldly pleasures can offer their own path to the transcendent. You had oranges and lemons in a canvas bag beside you, and seven different kinds of light burning up inside of you. And yet, as at least one of these examples makes clear, Daniel has long had what he describes as an adversarial relationship to his own body, though one which necessarily exists in constant flux. He's spoken publicly about periods of self-harm, cutting his arms and legs with razors, and of disordered eating. Earlier this year, he told British GQ that, as an old dope addict, I don't take care of my body, I actually punish my body. Song for My Stepfather, written around 2004 for The Sunset Tree but left off the album, goes beyond punishment into a kind of dissociation. In the wake of being physically beaten by a grown man, and not for the first time, the singer is in some way gone when his abuser comes around to apologise. And in my place meet my letter-perfect body double, a replica where my body used to be who feels no pain at all. Jeff Sanborn writes beautifully in his own Mountain Goats newsletter about the everyday materials, the simple words and chords which undemonstratively make up such a devastating scenario. A five-year-old boy who has already felt the need to will himself away, but who is in that moment already creating something separate, solid, invulnerable, a purely physical stand-in from which his true self stands apart. Go ahead and hit him, he feels no pain at all, is phrased triumphantly. The numbed propulsion of the music makes that assertion harder to believe, but a belief in your own endurance, or in some plane of existence beyond the body being brutalised, must be one of the only viable ways for a child in such a situation to recover any kind of control. In memory of Satan and White Cedar, both taken from Transcendental Youth and both drawing obliquely on their author's experiences of addiction and recovery in Portland in the late 80s, 
each revisit the idea of leaving the body behind from two very different angles. The narrator of the former declares that he's locked up in myself, never going to get free, over a swelling horn section, which nonetheless has the rising force of an escape bid. On White Cedar, the same horns are sombre and tentative, but the singer is convinced, I will be made a new creature, one bright day. These themes, as you might imagine, are developed to their fullest extent on the scripture-inspired The Life of the World to Come, in which Pitchfork interviewer Tom Bryhan drew Daniel's attention to his use of Philippians 3, 20, 21, a verse about how Jesus will make your body like his body, specifically transforming the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body, as the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it. In the Derby, another translation favoured by Daniel, the earthly form becomes our body of humiliation. Many of Daniel's biblical songs seem to come down in favour of leaving the humiliations of the flesh behind. If I am not this body that imprisons me, a day will come when I will be restored, when I will get my perfect body back someday. On the recent Cave Angel Ascendancy tour, Daniel has repeatedly emphasised a similar idea with live lyrical interpolations, most notably the phrase, when my change comes, which now appears in the majority of performances of Never Quite Free. Taken together, these suggest an idiosyncratic adoption of the theological concept of the resurrection body, much debated because the idea of any kind of bodily form after death seems to open up some of the greatest fractures between the spiritual and the physical in Christian doctrine. Daniel's engagement with these questions is clear in his interview with Christianity Today, where he's certain of an interlocutor who understands where they're coming from. I used to be strict Augustinian. Body is just a cage for the spirit. But I don't really believe that anymore. I'm not sure where I am with it. But I do like what it does. St. Francis called his body Brother Ass. They used to call him Mule. So I like that idea because a mule's alive, but it also is stubborn. Augustine himself for whom my New Commandment Singing Catholic School was named, quotes the Wisdom of Solomon 915 to make sense of his own dismay at continually plunging into the things of this world. Ever the soul is weighed down by a mortal body, earthbound cell that clogs the manifold activity of its thought. The weight I carried was the habit of the flesh, the author of the Confessions emphasises, in the middle of a passage about trying to free himself from the misconception that God is some kind of bodily substance extended in space. And yet Augustine's lapses into my old ways, doctrinal error and bodily pleasure alike, are understood through another culinary metaphor. In these moments, God exists for him only as the memory of something that I loved and longed for, as though I had sensed the fragrance of the fare but was not yet able to eat it. This is a striking comparison to make for a figure who claims to daily wage war upon his corporeal form by fasting, trying time and again to force my body to obey me. Although Augustine notes we are obliged to take the one earthly means available of satisfying hunger through eating, he is constantly on guard against the ominous kind of enjoyment which follows in the wake of nourishing himself, lest he find himself actually doing for pleasure what he claims to be doing for the sake of my health, an uncertainty which the unhappy soul welcomes as a means of excusing the body's desires. On Golden Boy, John Daniel leaves the Augustinian perspective on the ground with the shells. When he sings, we're going to have to watch ourselves, what's at stake is compassion, not carbohydrates. The song's narrator is perfectly content to love the creator in his creations rather than scorning them as secondary, corruptible and detrimental to human flourishing. Even St. Augustine, who Bob Dylan reminds us was alive as you or me, saw a god he could love in a light of a certain kind, a voice, a perfume, a food, 
and embrace, but reframes these things as existing only in my inner self, where food is never consumed by the eating. Daniel's lyrics allow sensory gratification of the kind Augustine found suspicious on earth simply to exist in heaven even more abundantly. The accumulating energy of his performance bathes us in the light of the young Chinese farmer with the eastern sun behind him smiling at you from the shelves, and suggests that there is nothing to be ashamed of in this visual feast and the satiation which it promises. This appeals to me, I think, for the same reasons that I connected with Imogen West Knight's recent Financial Times article on pandemic Treat Brain. The author, who, like Danielle, had struggled in her 20s with disordered eating, finds herself living in lockdown like a dauphin in pre-revolutionary France. A wide range of correspondents inform her that they, too, have found themselves remaking their relationships with food, drink and dopamine in sometimes dismaying but often rewarding ways over the past year and a half of social deprivation. West Knights concludes that what felt initially like a temporary window of self-forgiveness for the body's desires, what Catholics might call an indulgence, started to seem like a new horizon onto a kinder way of living. For me, the pandemic was a reset, at times a painful one. Suddenly I was allowing myself pizza, chocolate, wine, whenever I wanted it, justifying it all by saying that on the other side of lockdown I would go back to dieting, scour these treats out of my life. But now that lockdown is over, all I want to do is eat and drink with my friends. The tomorrow in which I imagined I would be good again has never come, and I don't want it to. I want to enjoy myself. The truth is life was always like this, a series of good times and bad times, and I deserve to eat what I wanted in all of them. Being good, in these terms, has nothing to do with doing good to others, as envisaged in the good life to which we are exhorted in Golden Boy, or with the careful reconnection with nature, seasonal eating and subsistence farming explored in TV's The Good Life, either. It's a mantra inherited from millennial diet culture, which developed its own moral lexicon of excess and restraint out of the fat denigration and reducing industries, which Amy Erdman Farrell notes have been in existence and hawking an endless parade of surprisingly similar diets since the second half of the 1800s. West Knight's recognition that I deserve to eat what I wanted is one informed by contemporary therapeutic practices aimed at establishing healthier relationships between body and mind. I've grown up, I think, somewhere between the two. My family home wasn't affected by food insecurity, but it was filled with weird ideas about food. Mum subscribed to various diets, ate rice cakes, broke her own rules to get desserts in cafes. On Sundays, Dad made flavourless casseroles, meat and vegetables slow-cooked into beige oblivion, and took a portion into work every day of the week. He was always snipping at us not to steal his biscuits. They were homeowners. They could buy more biscuits. Once, he took me to the cinema, and I have to assume this was in 1998, because the only other film I remember going to see alone with him was when I was 11, and I hope I was younger than that in this story. I wanted an ice cream. There was a long queue, and if there was one thing I knew about my dad, it's that he hated queuing, that he never did it. Somehow, that day, he ended up doing it anyway, though not without reminding me of what an ordeal it was, that I should count myself lucky. When we got to the front of the line, I don't remember the flavour of the cone that I was holding, only that somewhere between the counter and the exit, I accidentally knocked the scoop of ice cream off onto the carpeted floor. He didn't see it, and I didn't want him to. Not after all that. So I picked it back up, put it on the cone, and ate it. This was something I didn't have to do, but I suppose at the time it was hard to imagine responding in any other way. I'm writing this newsletter with a bowl of orange-flavoured mini dime bars and M&S Millionaire shortbread bites on the desk beside me. My wife called it my writing power-ups. 
Once, in an argument about the shopping, she told me, all you buy is sugar, and she wasn't wrong to say it. We're homeowners now, and I can buy as many biscuits as I want, and I do. But part of me still thinks I shouldn't be allowed to. I'm looking at a photo where my cheeks are puffed out to blow out the candles on a birthday cake, a sticker on the fridge behind me proudly proclaiming it free of fluorocarbons. When I was a couple of years younger than this, I had four milk teeth removed under general anaesthetic for eating too much sugar. Then I wrote a letter to the Kellogg's Corporation, saying they shouldn't put so much sugar in their cereals. Reminded of this recently, my first response was to feel like an absolute narg. What did my lack of impulse control have to do with the options that should be available to others? But then, what five-year-old can stop himself eating something delicious? Even in my thirties, I found myself overeating in restaurants which, while now within my price range, still feel well beyond the reach of my table manners. Struggling to finish the kind of drinks which waiters explain to you, stuffed into nice shirts so tight I've ended up being sick in the car park. The logic, I think, is usually that I don't want to waste anything I've paid for. If anything, I think my parents, due to their own upbringings, overemphasise the financial anxiety associated with food, passing some of it on to me unduly. Access to food for me wasn't, as it was for my wife, one of the invisible assault courses with which poverty inhibits children who should be carelessly swinging from the bars of jungle gyms, as Laura Waddell writes in her indelible essay on class and food inequality. But in the midst of my own less explicable neuroses, I still feel deeply the sentiment behind her description of ordering a takeaway pizza, pressing the pleasure button to enter that brief, intense moment where the socioeconomic boundaries dissolve and bodily satisfaction is all there is. Would you understand what I meant if I said that, as a 31-year-old man, I really have no idea how I feel about my own body? I get overheated, overwhelmed, washing the dishes. Bending down to low drawers, I hear noises of strain and distress for which I used to mock my parents coming unbidden from my mouth. I get into running for weeks at a time, then stop whenever work gets busy or if there's a fractional change in the temperature. I ask not to have photos shared on Instagram that reveal my beer belly from angles which must look totally unremarkable to others. I stoop, the big bowling ball of my head pulling my shoulders forwards. Sometimes I catch a glimpse of my shadow toiling up the stairs of our house and feel like an Igor in a Terry Pratchett novel, hunched and hairy, resentful at the necessity of dragging my own weight around the world. But at this point, I've caught up with my subject. In 1998, Golden Boy was written and recorded by a 31-year-old man who, at least for the 3 minutes and 16 seconds of the original take, seems to feel more positive than that about the possibility of existing in corporeal form and continuing to do so for eternity. Perhaps it's not entirely unrelated that, in the same year, John married his girlfriend Lalitri at a wedding catered by Ishkon, LA, and was able to distribute prasadam, food which, once offered to Krishna, becomes no longer purely material but transcendental, to the entire wedding. The guests included Daniel's carnivorous stepfather, who was so angry at the absence of meat from the menu that he ate two cheeseburgers before he came. When, after the ceremony, he told John it was the best food he had ever had at a wedding, the groom turned to the literal meaning of prasadam in Sanskrit, mercy, to put words to the experience. This was God giving my stepfather, who I never fully will forgive, giving a little mercy to everybody. In the apocryphal second apocalypse of John, the bodies of the righteous, regardless of their age at death, are resurrected as 30-year-olds, each sharing the same appearance and size, this sounds like a pretty good deal for some of the elect, and pretty rough for others. It isn't clear whether the shades of Victorian children will find themselves all at once taking an interest in homebrewing or tabletop gaming. 
but the concept does at least suggest that there are worse ages to be, with some things behind you and some things ahead. Knowing the food you like, and where to get it, and how to give your body what it needs. Trying to lead a good life. For the singer in Golden Boy, and for all of us, this has to involve being good to the bodies that carry us, including recognising their potential to communicate and commune with the divine. To see them not as cages, but as dwelling places. Life is, after all, too short to refrain from eating jam out of the jar. This shift would involve turning away from the future longed for by the newly abstinent Augustine, who looks eagerly to the day described in 1 Corinthians 6.13, when God will bring both food and our animal nature to an end. Get in, losers, we're going shopping in paradise, where the promise of eternity and happiness is one of feasting, of superabundance. The peanuts are magnificent, and they are everywhere. This week's episode was written and produced by me, Richard O'Brien. Most of the songs featured in this week's entry can be found on the Spotify playlist at the bottom of the newsletter. For live recordings, check out archive.org. Thanks to John Darnielle for letting me quote from his songs. The sources of all other quotes are given in the show notes and linked directly in the Substack newsletter. This week, I'd like to especially thank members of the Mountain Goats discussion and shiphosting groups on Facebook, where I've had so many informative conversations and discoveries in the past few weeks. Special thanks to Liz Hamilton for telling me about rescue breathing. Thanks also to my wife, Sydney, for being a supportive reader as I work through some difficult ideas. You can find us on Instagram at 30 underscore years underscore later, where you can get updates on new episodes and occasionally see pictures of my cat sleeping in a cupboard. You can also find me on Twitter as at NotRockyHorror. If you like the show, you can always leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to help more people discover it. Or you can always just tell your few remaining friends. This week, Richard is getting into the Shields Ferry. <laughs>